Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I confess this morning that I wish uh, the evangelical, the president of uh, the largest evangelical college were in the headline news for something good, Uh, but that is not the case. Uh, We talked at the end of last week about Jerry Falwell Jr.'s very public um, demonstration of living in a way inconsistent with the way Christians ought to live publicly in the world. And uh, if you haven't yet read the New York Times this morning or the Atlantic or virtually any other uh, mainstream media outlet, uh, then you may not know that Jerry Falwell Jr. is now on an indefinite leave of absence from the position of president of Liberty University. Uh, This is the way the Atlantic is covering it. How Jerry Falwell Jr. lost the Liberty flock, the university's leader, has effectively become a spokesman for evangelicalism. Pastors and alumni worry about the consequences for their faith. Here is the way the New York Times is covering it. After Falwell stumbles, his hometown sees a leader in need of redemption. Jerry Falwell Jr. has courted controversy repeatedly, but a provocative Instagram post led to him stepping aside as Liberty University's president. Um, The coverage that you will read in the mainstream media, will likely not be as nuanced as the coverage that you would read from people who have been paying very close attention to this brother in Christ for a very long time. And so maybe I'll direct you to David French at the French Press, uh, which is on thedispatch.com. The decline and fall of Jerry Falwell is the evangelical comfort with crassness finally cracking. Um, It's important for us to reflect on just how much we are willing to put up with in terms of those who hold themselves out to be, quote-unquote, evangelical Christians um, who have major, massive platforms and really unprecedented access, particularly to this president of the United States, um, and yet who say and do things that you and I both know are patently inconsistent with uh with the life that Christians are called to live. It's a misrepresentation of Christ and not uh, not an honest representation of who he is to the world that we as as Christians are seeking to reach. So this is a matter of prayer today. Um, let there be no gloating. Let there be uh, honest concern for a brother who, um, well, in, in the words of, uh, of the New York Times, um, by his own, uh, the, the assessment of his own inner circle, needs redemption. So let us be praying for that. Let us be uh, praying that uh, Liberty University would continue its fine work. um, And let us continue to pray for uh, the Board of Trustees of that institution and all of our Christian colleges and universities across the country. Uh, Higher ed is hard. It's difficult. It's hard work. um, And those who are seeking to do it from a Christian worldview have ongoing challenges. And so we want to lift them up in prayer every single day. All right. Next up, I've got Ryan 
uh, Putman. He is the author of When Doctrine Divides the People of God. We're going to talk about the reality um, that there are times that we interpret Scripture differently, um, and that leads to doctrinal positions that often create divisions or fissures in our witness that that are just frankly so confusing to the world, they don't have any interest in Jesus. So we got to do better. Ryan Putman is going to help us do just that. He's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Ryan Putman. Uh, he is joining me from, I, I'm guessing, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm going to guess. Williams you... Baptist University. I just took a new uh, position there. Well, well, tell us where Williams Baptist University is. It is in northeast Arkansas, and it is a, uh, a Christian univer- liberal arts university, and uh, just started a work college program where our focus is on worldview uh, studies and integrating a Christian worldview at every level of education. Oh, I love that. That's right up our alley. So we're going to want to keep track of that as you uh, as you progress. Um, that's that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that this morning. The book that uh, that we have teed up to talk about is "When Doctrine Divides the People of God: An Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity." Um, and while I am tempted to you know, like lift up a word of the day and ask you to define it like, I don't know, perspicuity of Scripture. Let's instead, <laughs> let's, let's instead do, um, do, do some simpler words, because even in the title of the book, the word doctrine probably right. needs to be defined. People sure. of God probably needs to be defined. Evangelical sure. or evangelical approach probably needs to be defined. And you are definitely talking about theological diversity within a particular range. And so let me just set that ball up on the tee and let you take a swing. Sure. Well, uh, again, my my interest began just watching Christians sort of interact with each other in social media platforms, uh, the the rise of discernment blogs, a lot of different uh, Christians sort of going after each other, Christians who had very similar convictions. And uh, what I mean by evangelical, uh, I, I would appeal to many definitions that that are that are that are not original to me. Things like a focus on the gospel—that's what the word evangelical comes from. The word uh, evangel, which means gospel. Uh, we're we're talking about the good news of Jesus, that the 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 need for every single person to come to faith in Christ to be converted. To, uh, to to take on Jesus's atonement, what Jesus has done, uh, taking on the punishment for sinners in our place. And evangelicals also put uh, a strong priority on the supreme authority of the Bible, the inerrancy or full truthfulness of the Bible. And uh, that that P word you mentioned, perspicuity, uh, that's a that's a that's a Reformation term for the clarity of the Bible, meaning, that the Bible is written in such a way that the people of God, his church, those who have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, can read and interpret the Bible for themselves. But that does not mean that you and I can arrive at just our own individualized, personal understanding of Scripture 
and say, well, that is what God, you know, means in his eternal word. There is this process that we engage in as believers um, where where what Scripture means it must be understood alongside one another, or it doesn't mean anything. It cannot just mean exactly. anything. It must That's mean right. what God means it to mean. So help us unpack that. Well, sure. One of the things that, that I would want to stress is, especially in a postmodern context where people have often argued that that readers bring to their to their text meaning their own meaning or that that we create our own meaning as we read text we want to say no authors intend and create meaning and the biblical authors of course are are the human authors of scripture but more importantly uh, the work of the Spirit in their lives by which uh, the, the Scriptures were inspired. The Holy Spirit is intending and creating meaning in the biblical text. And our goal as, as interpreters of the Bible is always to understand what God is doing and saying through the text, not simply what we want to see or what our favorite position is. To come to the Bible honestly and to, to try to seek to understanding it in its own uh, historical context, its own setting, and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and reveal what he is doing through the text. Again, I'm talking with Professor uh, Ryan Putman. We are talking about his new book, When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. I do have copies of the book to give away, thanks to our friends over at Crossway. And so if you're Excellent. interested in a copy, just text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Again, um, if you are a student of Scripture, you're trying to understand how is it that Christians um, disagree on so many things, and then how might we be able to disagree in front of the world in such a way that doesn't damage our corporate witness? That is really what the book is about. Why is it the Christians who have the same convictions about the gospel— um, have such rigid disagreements about maybe secondary or tertiary matters, and then how do we, even in the midst of those disagreements, treat one another in public in such a way that the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is not destroyed and therefore our witness to the world compromised? If you're interested in the book, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dr. Putman and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Putman, author of, well, several books, but the one we're talking about today, When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. Yes, I have books available. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Dr. Putman, you, you give uh, five, you kind of outline five reasons uh, that believers disagree on doctrine. You talk about the fact that we read imperfectly, it's a section on hermeneutics. You talk about um, uh, the, our engaging the text differently, reasoning differently, feeling differently, approaching the biblical text with different biases. Um, that, it's really helpful for us to understand why, as Christians who esteem the gospel, uh, esteem the scriptures, how we could still arrive at 
different positions doctrinally. Anything there you want to cover? Because I really want to dig into the second part of the book, um, which, you know, feels like the practical application portion. Plainly that just because we believe in the, the supreme authority, the full truthfulness of the biblical text, and we do have the illuminating activity of the Holy Spirit, interpretation of Scripture is never automatic. The work of the Holy Spirit helps us believe what we see in the text. The work of the Spirit can, uh, in fact, um, shed light on passages that have confusion to them. But we, as we see you know, from, from the work of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, Scripture has always been read in the company of other believers, and individual believers as well as a group of believers can misinterpret the text. So what I wanted to do was shed light on ways in which that happens, or at least ways in which we come to differing positions. All right, and then I would just love for you to share um, about this friendship, this enduring friendship between John Wesley and George Whitfield as a wonderful example or model of how people can charitably disagree with one another and remain really dear lifelong friends in the pursuit and advancement of the gospel. It's a really powerful story. Dollamore's uh, two-volume biography of George Whitfield uh, almost reads in some ways like a biography of John Wesley because their lives were so intertwined. You can't really separate one from the other in their public ministries. They were friends uh, very early on uh, in their days at Oxford, and um, they both had conversion experiences around the same time. Uh, they were both collaborating together in a very um, you know, public, powerful ministry at the same time, and they were both called Methodists. Um, you know, although the, the Methodist name stuck with John Wesley in his more Arminian theology, George Whitfield, who was very clearly more Calvinistic in his thinking, uh, was originally called a Methodist too. So um, one of the things that you find is that they really started to go separate ways theologically when they were younger preachers. And they were reading different sources. They were reading different traditions. They had very different feelings toward um, Reformed theology. Uh, Wesley was pretty repulsed by it, and, and Whitfield found it, found it sweet and, and, and edifying. But what really tragically started happening is there was a lot of public disagreement that, that just grew increasingly nastier between the two, so much to the point that even um, the critics of evangelicalism in England at the time started saying, hey, look, these, these guys can't get along. These guys uh, promote false doctrines. Look at, how they're, look at how they're eating each other alive. And by the grace of God, um, they had a, a process of reconciliation where they made efforts to, to be reconciled to one another, and, and God restored their friendship. They, they came to the point where they recognized, hey, we are never going to, to agree on a lot of these secondary and tertiary matters. We're not going to agree on these second— uh, uh, the second tier and third tier issues, but we do recognize each other as brothers in Christ. We are co-laborers for the gospel. We will do ministry together, and um, at, at the end of Whitfield's life, Wesley was the one who preached one of Whitfield's funerals, 
And it was during this funeral that we had the first recorded instance of the phrase agree to disagree. Um, that that we, we, we see that in these men's lives, there was disagreement on some matters that we're not going to call unimportant, but matters of lesser importance. And, uh, and they chose the gospel and they cho- chose Christian witness uh, over having agreement on the more nuanced matters. All right. And because, you know, we like stories and history helps us uh, sort of frame our own experience. Tell us about Philip of Hess, because when we think about um, a unified evangelical Protestant witness today, there would be some people who would say, you know, we can just do away with all of our differences and there will be this kumbaya coming together um, and it will happen. Tell us, first of all, how unlikely you think that that is ultimately in terms of the sort of unity that um, that might be possible today, um, because our institutions are, you know, are pretty big at this point. Um, But tell us about Philip of Hess and what he envisioned, because that's really a fun story, too. Sure. Okay. The the context there we're talking about is is during the beginning stages of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, had had nailed his 95 theses to the to the door at the church at Wittenberg, and for about 10 years, it had um, a, a, a growing public ministry across Germany. And uh, of course, the the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli also was was seeing some success and growth in his ministry. And there was this looming political threat, which was the Holy Roman Empire, um, that that had that had the uh, the the ear of the Pope, and uh, and and so what Philip did as a German prince, he wanted to see the Lutherans and the Zwinglians get together on points of doctrinal agreement, so they could be basically a rival church to the Roman Catholic Church. He saw and envisioned this large, unified Protestant church that would be uh, a source of power uh, throughout Europe. And uh, Luther and Zwingli had been kind of uh, nipping at each other publicly over their disagreements about the Lord's Supper. Um, For Luther, the view of the Supper was something that theologians often call consubstantiation. It's this idea that Christ is literally present in the elements of the Supper Zwingli said no, that the Lord's Supper is a mere memorial, and, and, and so they had been writing about that publicly to each other. And so Philip, really wanting to make peace, really wanting to do something kind of ecumenical, brought them together in 1529 at Marburg Castle for what is known to history as the Marburg Colloquy. And uh, what they were able to do is they were able to draft a statement of points of agreement, and they agreed on 14 out of 15 points. But it was that 15th point about the Lord's Supper that really divided and separated these two men. And and Luther, at that point in time, refused to acknowledge Zwingli as his brother in Christ because of the way that they disagreed about the Lord's Supper. And I think the important takeaway uh, in all of these discussions, particularly to what you just said, Carmen, 
is that just because we want to have unity in the faith, unity in the gospel, unity in the power of the Spirit, and to present a unified Christian witness, that is not to say that doctrine doesn't matter. And it's not to say that our doctrinal differences are unimportant. Um, because we are people who pursue truth. We want to know truth. And what we're trying to do is strike that balance between between ignoring or overlooking truth and going the route of, you know, pluralism, saying that 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 uh, that truth doesn't matter, and going to this other extreme, which says that all of our differences should divide us. All of our differences should segregate us from one another and keep us from doing ministry effectively together. Um, it is a fascinating book. It's a wonderful uh, historical look at some events in um in Reformation and Protestant history that just come to life in the way that you describe them in the book. Um, let me just encourage people to check it out. Ryan Putman is the author of When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. If you're interested in a copy, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Uh, Dr. Putman, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with thank Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. All right, headlines from around the world, including uh, including Beirut. Um, I, we got all kinds of things to cover with Dr. Aikman next. I, the reason that I'm hesitating is because I'm going to lead off by asking him to comment on the arrest of his personal friend, Jimmy Lai, who was arrested in Hong Kong along, along with uh, others in his family and some of his staff members. Um, you may recall David's testimony about his friend Jimmy um, a number of years ago, Jimmy came to faith through the testimony of David Aikman, and um, and now Jimmy is uh, in under arrest. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, is uh, is charging him with conspiring with foreign governments. That would probably be us. All right, that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. George Matheson was a teenager when doctors told him he was going blind. He graduated from the University of Glasgow in 1861. By the time he finished graduate seminary studies, he was sightless. His fiancée returned his engagement ring with a note, I cannot see my way clear to go through life bound by the chains of marriage to a blind man. Matheson adapted to his sightless world but never quite recovered from his broken heart. He became a powerful and poetic pastor, led a full and inspiring life, turning to the unending love of God for comfort. And he penned these words. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, and I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. The love of people may come and go, but God's love it never leaves. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, uh, David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Uh, David, I'm going to lead off this morning by just inviting you to comment about the arrest of your friend and colleague, uh, Jimmy Lai, in Hong Kong. Well, this is the tragic consequence of... Uh, the national security law, which was applied to Hong Kong and basically allowed the Chinese authorities 
to arrest anybody who is dissenting from the parliament. So any criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, any criticism of the handling of Hong Kong by the Governor Carrie Lam is potentially a source for arresting people. It's a very disturbing development. So for those of you just joining us, uh, the United States imposed sanctions on Friday against Hong Kong. Uh, the leader, Carrie Lam, and 10 other Chinese uh, and Hong Kong official, officials. Um, on Monday, that would be today, Hong Kong journalists, including uh, Jimmy Lai and eight of his colleagues, uh, have been arrested, according to the uh, U.S. Consulate General in Hong Kong, uh, we have repeatedly raised our concerns about the effect of this ill-defined, vaguely worded, far-reaching law. Um, and we are, I think, David, seeing uh, exactly that. Um, we have journalists saying a month or two ago, nobody could think that a Hong Kong media organization could be searched like this. We never thought this could happen in Hong Kong. This is very sad. Um, you have uh, witnessed a lot of history when you see things like yeah. this happen, what tends to happen next? Well, I think they're basically going to tighten the screws on every facet of life in Hong Kong. Um, that may even include attacking churches or limiting the ability of churches to have meetings. But in any event, all semblance of civic freedom has been tossed out of the window, which is the way the Chinese Communist Party prefers to do things at even the best of times. And this, of course, is probably one of the worst times. Certainly, we're raising prayers for uh, for Jimmy and the others who have been arrested with him. Um, and David and I will both continue to uh, to follow this story. David, let's pivot our attention to um, to Lebanon, specifically to the city of Beirut, um, I feel confident is a, it is a place that you have been uh, and can get, yeah. can describe to us, um, you know, from an on the street uh, on the street level. And then let's talk about what's happening there now, following the crippling explosion that took place last week. Well, Lebanon is a very attractive country, situated in a very pleasant climatic part of the Mediterranean, the sort of eastern edge. It's got mountains where you can ski in the morning and then ocean where you can swim or scuba dive in the afternoon. It's got everything. But it's also got a very diverse and, unfortunately, very sectarian communities. One of the largest communities until recently was the Christian community, which was basically... Um, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic. And then you had a quite rapid increase in the demography of Shiite Muslim uh, residents of Lebanon. And they have produced this group called Hezbollah, which is fanatically hostile to Israel and is behind almost every major effort to infiltrate northern Israel, and of course has been associated with bombing attempts against 
American embassy and, and the, the most classically the uh, um, American Marine base in uh, 1982. And they are a very nasty group of people who uh, regularly beat up demonstrators against the government, get demonstrators against what Hezbollah is doing. And so it's a very uncertain political and social climate, very difficult for ordinary Lebanese trying to get by. Well, and we're, uh, you know, we're reading today about ongoing protests demanding reforms. Um, I, you know, we hear about world leaders offering aid, but they are demanding that that aid go directly to uh, the citizenry, bypassing uh, in any way possible the Lebanese government. Um, this is this is a really challenging time. The people there living right on the edge of life and death. Um, and the government really not seemingly being in a in a position to even redistribute resources that might be coming from abroad. That's right. And the, the tragedy of Lebanon is that amidst the sectarian squabbles between Christians and Shiite Muslims and Sunni Muslims, um, Lebanon doesn't seem to have assembled a sort of community of citizens who really want the system to work. Let's say like the Americans who signed on to the original Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution. You remember what Benjamin Franklin said when he was asked by uh, a local lady from Philadelphia whether the Constitutional Convention had produced a monarchy or a republic. He replied famously, a republic, madam, if you can keep it, meaning that it would depend on the civic virtue of American citizens to make the system work. Well, poor old Lebanon doesn't have any sort of civic community sense in a political manner that can make the system work. That is what has to change. David Aikman and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to uh, we're going to talk next about an event that took place 75 years ago, the bombing of uh, Hiroshima uh, at 8.16 a.m. on August the 6th, 1945. Uh, we're just going to reflect on the 75 years since then and maybe anything that we have learned. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The morality and uh, legality of atomic warfare was actually not not much debated publicly 75 years ago. It it obviously continues to be debated today. Uh, it was 75 years ago that in an effort a successful effort to bring an end to World War II. The United States of America dropped two atomic bombs three days apart on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Two-thirds of the inhabitants, almost all civilians uh, of those cities, um, died. And the last member of the flight crew um, in what was uh, deemed a mission called Necessary Evil uh, 
passed away in November. Um, and so we're reflecting on the 75 years since Hiroshima. And uh, David, I just ask for you to comment. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity and a privilege to do that. Well, I think the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a tragic necessity. And I say necessity because I had met several veterans from the World War II Pacific War who were in the States waiting to board troop ships to invade Japan if the war had gone on. And it's been estimated that perhaps as many as 2 million Japanese would have died if the United States had invaded. And at very least, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers would have also died. And every single veteran I've ever talked to said, we're so grateful for the atomic bomb, horrible though it was, because it saved ultimately far more lives than it cost by being dropped. Because Japan was so fanatically obdurate in refusing to accept the surrender offers by the United States and by the other Western powers, that it, it almost certainly would not have surrendered. Which I think is the point that um, in this uh, 2018 NPR intervie- interview given by you know the last surviving member of the U.S. military who flew as a as a part of those mission missions. Um, Basically what he said, all war is hell. The Japanese started the war and we had to finish it. And he said, I do not regret what we did that day. Um, I think it's really difficult for people today, um, particularly those who have lived so insulated from the realities of war. I'm talking here about people here in the United States of America. Um, you know, we, we see war on TV. Um, we even watch uh, drone warfare in real time. But somehow we, um, we imagine that we are morally superior and we wouldn't do what we did then. Um, but I think that's a misunderstanding of the realities that we were facing at the time. Absolutely. Now, I heard a talk when I was at school many, many years ago from a British decorated pilot called Leonard Cheshire. He was the only non-American pilot allowed to travel on one of the observation aircraft who was following what happened at Nagasaki. And he was profoundly affected by seeing the bomb explode. And he he dedicated the rest of his life to, uh, to setting up homes for uh, irreparably injured and uh, wounded people, which was a heroic thing to do because he just saw that the explosion itself was a catastrophically disastrous thing, and he wanted to, to do something to make amends for it without in any way saying that the Americans should not have dropped a bomb. Nevertheless, the reality of nuclear war is so horrific that mercifully the world has not experienced it ever since that time. 
So I'd like to spend the last couple of minutes that we have together today, David, um, talking about the plight of of migrants uh, in Italy and elsewhere. In the midst of the COVID-19 shutdowns um, around the world, we have in large measure lost sight of what's happening in refugee camps. We have lost sight of what is happening among asylum seekers, um, among these migrant populations uh, who have come from, in this case, North Africa into the southern parts of Europe. Um, this individual has emerged as an advocate fighting for these invisible migrants. Um, it's kind of surprising that an Abu Bakr Sumahoro would uh, have become a household name. Um, talk with us about uh, the migrant population and what's happening in the midst of COVID-19. Well, of course, one of the things that's uppermost in the minds of people living in the UK is that the migration across the English Channel has reached, I think, about 7,000 by August this year, which was more than the entirety for 2019. And on one night, they had they picked up about 117 migrants who were crossing in, in two dinghies, dangerously overloaded. And although the water has been very calm because the weather's been very good, it's still a, a very dangerous shipping lane. There are container ships that cruise up and down the channel all the time. So your life is not safe just by being in a dinghy. And they've had to call in the British Royal Navy to try and protect the country from this influx of illegal immigrants who are risking their lives and the lives of many other people just to get to the UK. We're going to continue to, uh, you know, pray for folks just in in the desperation that's being experienced around the world in the midst of COVID-19. Uh, we're going to lift people up in prayer. David Aikman, thank you for joining us today. We're certainly praying for your friend, Jimmy Lai, and you and I will um, continue to uh, to talk about him and the other headlines bearing in on us from around the world. Thank you again, sir, for joining us. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you being on. Absolutely. We'll be right back. I'm going to encourage you today to set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things of the world, even though we give it our prayerful attention and our careful service, we're going to remain fixated and focused on the Lord our God. Uh, brothers and sisters, um, we don't live according to the flesh, right? We live according to the spirit. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of God to whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself is bearing witness that we are the children of God. And so let me just encourage you today as a fellow child of God to revel in the reality of God's love for you. God loves you. God has demonstrated his love for you in that Jesus Christ died while we were yet sinners. What more could he do to demonstrate his love than that which he has already done? Let us go forth this day to love and to serve the Lord in ways that honor who he is and communicate the greatness of his love to others. Have a great day and God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.